Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. The Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. And remember, prior service and active duty military. If you email me first, I'll give you a special discount code just for prior service and active duty military. With that, let's go ahead and start taking our calls today. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack. Jake from Turkey here again. Thanks again to you and everyone for recommending some significant back episodes to listen to to get, you know, to get my head wrapped around the core ideas behind the Survival Podcast. I'm really enjoying it. I'm actually listening to episode 443 from the archives right now, Change the Nation by Changing Yourself. Pretty interesting and, you know, mind-altering ideas in there. One thing I, have to, I notice a lot is that you say this nation, stuff like this nation is nothing like what the Founding Fathers intended. Here's my question. I know there are many resources and many opinions and interpretations out there of early American history. What are two or three books or resources that you'd recommend to get like an overview of what you think of, you know, of American history and, you know, really what the Founding Fathers intended when they set up this country? Um, just really enjoying getting my, you know, getting my self immersed in this type of thinking and would love to learn a little bit about what you think of you know where your foundation for american history and what you think about all that comes from thanks a lot thanks for the show we really i really enjoy it bye You know, there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of great resources. I think some of the books that I've read that have really kind of anchored me into what I believe was the intention of the driving forces of the Founding Fathers are uh, the autobiographies of Benjamin Franklin, the autobiography of Thomas Jefferson, uh, and the uh, the book uh, John Adams, which uh, was made into an HBO miniseries by David McCullough. Um, it, there's a lot more historical research and depth into the John Adams book because it's written by a third party today who had to go back and do it. Uh, but I think it brings a, a ton a ton of information forward about what things are really like. I think the HBO miniseries was really good as well for that book, especially the first two episodes. And, um, I mean, it, it's no secret that my favorite founding father is Thomas Jefferson. So anything and everything you can find on him. And I think one thing to be mindful though of is that Jefferson was one father with one view for America, and there was some real conflict among even the founding fathers about what the future of, uh, of this nation was supposed to be. We had people like Hamilton that thought it was a great idea to, uh, to put the nation into debt, and the more debt the better. And that was you know right from the beginning. So where you can start to see that conflict, and you can see a really good illustration of it. It, it takes some effort to read through, but you know the Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers would be a good place to to look at the two sides of the coin, so to speak. But if you really want to know what actually got done, well, then we read the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And I think if we read the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we get a really good look on not just what both sides of the fence, so to speak, even back then wanted, um, because parties were created almost as quickly as government was created in America, uh, even though people like Washington warned us that if we put our allegiance in parties, we would forever divide the nation and we would, uh, we would make incredible mistakes. Um, but when we look at the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we see what we what was agreed upon. And I think that that is probably the most foundational thing you can do is to, on regular occasions, read the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's not easy reading in some ways. In some ways, it's poetic language that is, is amazing, and some other parts of it are like, yeah, I know this, and uh, they don't do that anyway, and it, it's legalese in this portion thereof, but... Um, take take this in the, in the in the heart and consideration uh, all the way up through the 1800s uh, when the government was going to do anything. The first conversation the people had was, "Can they do this? Are they allowed to do this?" People were well versed in constitutional law and not in some dusty old PhD way of these people that think it's a living document and subject to interpretation. No, in the common man's way of, I don't got a lot of books, but we can get a hands on the Constitution, a copy of it, pretty easy, and let's read it and let's see what it says because uh, it's it's who we are as a people. 
So I think, you know, those are some resources that I would rely on. Again, uh, the autobiographies of Franklin and uh, Jefferson and any of the, the founders' autobiographies, but those two I particularly like because I particularly like the individuals. Um, the, uh, the, the book by David McCullough, John Adams, uh, the miniseries that goes along with it would be great. I would love to see a miniseries done on Jefferson's life with the attention to detail and historical accuracy that was done with Adams. The, the Jefferson character in there was probably very accurate, but there's so much left out. Um, a lot about the relationship between the two. Uh, the letters between Adams and Jefferson are, uh, especially the letters, letter, letters later in life that are available to be read, uh, show you kind of both men coming to terms with how, how, how hard it is to govern a nation uh, and understanding where each other had a point. Uh, those are quite useful. But those are just some of my thoughts. I think that the most important thing, though, is we know the Constitution and we know what it says, and then we expect that the restraint that it places on government be enforced. And that's one thing that we need to understand about the Constitution. It doesn't just set up our form of government. Its chief goal is to place restraint upon government and power within the people and the states that make up the nation. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Ryan from Wisconsin here. Uh, just got more of a comment than anything. I was watching a YouTube video on EDC. And the guy talked about keeping his EDC right next to his bed, and he had his car keys on it, and he said, oh, if there were ever someone to break into the house or anything, that he would use the car keys to set off the car alarm in his car to create a distraction. So I thought it was a pretty cool idea, and wondering what you thought about it. All right, thanks. Bye. Honestly, it's one of those ones that you hear and you go, I wish I would have thought of that. I mean, that, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. It's, uh, it's no guarantee. I mean, right, I, I liken car alarms now to, um, to kind of useless, honestly. Uh, when people first got car alarms, if one went off, and it's not worked on 20 years ago now, and very few people had them, if one went off, everybody looked and everybody was like, what's going on? And, you know, uh, the person that had the car alarm was running out the door to see what was going on, and, and everybody got them. And, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to have fun, uh, being annoying, uh, get yourself an older car with a you know big set of glass pack mufflers on it, one of those nice rumbling muscle cars like blah 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 blah, and uh, drive through a parking garage with that and just give it a little bit of boom as you go through there, and you'll set off like half the cars will go off and and things like that, and uh, and nobody will care. I think that today, uh, I could be driving down the street with a broken window with the car alarm going off, uh, and people would just be like, look at that idiot driving with his car alarm on. Uh, you know, the, the other things are, of course, and this is more like what the guy was talking about, the panic buttons. And uh, I, honestly, I have almost, I never did it, but with the Jetta, we have a panic button on it. And I've gotten very close to uh, disassembling the button so it won't function anymore. Because every once in a while, you get out and you hit it the wrong way, and the freaking thing goes off. And then it, you can't shut it up. It has to go for a certain number of times before it'll shut up. There's nothing you can do. Pushing the buttons, turning the key, nothing will shut it off. So uh, they, they've been kind of annoying. But in this application, uh, anybody breaking into a home fears... Uh, the homeowner, they fear uh, being caught, they fear uh, anything drawing attention to their presence, and something like that is certainly something that can throw them off of their game. And they may not even realize that it's a car if it's parked, like in a garage or something. They may think it's a, an alarm in the house, and that may have alerted authorities. So I, I think it's a great idea. I don't think it's the only thing I would rely on, but I think it's one more arrow in the quiver uh, and a great tip. And uh, if you get a chance, send me an email with the video of the guy uh, that had that suggestion, and uh, I'll try to make that a future reference because it sounds like he's got at least one really good idea. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Love the show. Thanks so much for doing this podcast. Um, I just got done listening to episode... 648, Reaching the Unreachable, and one of your most uh, guiding tenets that you explained is the likelihood of something happening and being guided by whether or not an emergency or a catastrophe has a likelihood. And I tried to sit down and write down a list of what I thought might be likely, and I kept getting bogged down. And I was wondering, did you ever like sit down and write some kind of a hierarchy, kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like a list? 
of, well, this is the most likely, this is the least likely, and then everything in between. And I think that might be kind of cool if you gave us such a list in some kind of an, a hierarchy or an order. And I don't know, maybe even set up a, like a graphic of it and maybe if someone on the, on the, uh, in the listeners, maybe someone would be talented enough to make like a poster or something. I, I don't know if it would be a poster of the sort that you might find at Sensor Gifts, but you know, uh, something that we can see as a visual. So thanks so much and just keep on. Well, I've addressed that often, but not really with a list. And maybe putting together a list with uh, probability on it might be a good idea. But here's here's the reality. The way I address that is with the inverse relationship, the very thing you're talking about at the beginning, of uh, impact scale versus uh, probability. And what I mean by that is a, an asteroid coming out of space and destroying, uh, maybe not, a, let's say it's not a planet killer asteroid, just one big enough to kill half the people on the planet, plunge us into a long-term uh, nuclear winter, more akin to what we had during the year with no summer uh, in, the, uh, in the 1700s or the 1800s. I don't remember when that was, when Krakatoa blew its top. Something like that. Probability, low. Impact scale high, number of people affected, the entire planet. Even if you're, you make it through okay, you're going to be affected by a disaster like that. Probability very low. Um, losing a job, the opposite end of the extreme, mundane. In 2010, 9 million people lost jobs. 9 million. Um, you can lose a job uh, for a variety of reasons. So the probability that you will experience it is actually much higher than being hit by a comet killer asteroid. And it's not a perfect system. But basically, instead of making disaster lists that, that, that come up with, like, what is most likely to happen here, just make a list of all disasters and then say to yourself, how many people are affected by this disaster? And it goes to, and, and if you put them in the order of the number of people affected when not, in, like think about this, 9 million people lost jobs, but by the individual action of one job loss, well that's one person. A tornadic storm, we're talking about anything from a few houses to you know a several mile long swath like some of these big ones have happened. And we start to put that in, in order. Now, then we have, to, we have to put a sanity check in here. If you live in Tornado Alley, which many of us do, um, you start increasing the probability of that type of storm for you, and you start to do some individual precautions for that. If you live on a mountaintop, you're not really that worried about flooding. If you live near, near a top of a mountain but in a draw, you might have some flash flood concerns, but you're going to deal with a flash flood. You're not going to deal with an overall long-term flood. My home is located at about 1,100 feet of elevation. The city of Hot Springs is down at about 500 feet elevation and I'm not that, that far from there. What does that mean? That means if my house is ever actually flooded, uh, I'm looking for a guy named Noah with a big boat to be coming by. So there are some geographic specifics, but it, overall we can plan for that the more mundane and individualized the disaster is, the more likely we are to be hit by it. Uh, some years it doesn't seem to work out that way for us because we look at things like this year with tornadic storms. And we just had a storm hit freaking Massachusetts. I mean, uh, a big tornado. That almost never happens. I talked to my father about a week ago. He told me in Cresona, Pennsylvania, they had a tornado that went right down uh, the highway and just tore trees. He said it basically took a path where there weren't a lot of people and it didn't go across the roads where people were driving and all. But if you know, he just basically moved it a few degrees over and, and took the same uh, several mile path that it did. It could have killed hundreds of people. It just went somewhere else, uh, basically because no one there is prepared. Because so you know, also you start having these tornadoes everywhere. Tornado alleys full of them, and we're getting them. So even at that point, we start going. Well, the, the, now we look at it and go, the probability I'm going to experience this is, is pretty high. But more people have an experience than, than have. And we still haven't risen to a level with 9 million people like with uh, a job loss. So it's, it's somewhat constant. So and, and it, this is the big takeaway, though. It doesn't matter what the disaster is. The commonality is always the same. The commonality is I need my five survival needs food, water, Shelter, energy, security. In every disaster, that's what I have to be concerned about. Even something, look at the job loss and go, do they all apply? Food, well, yeah, you got to eat. So you have less money, you have to worry about food. Water, at least there's a water bill. If you don't even have a water bill, you have a well, you have probably electricity to get the water out. Unless you're completely self-sufficient with your water, 
having a water supply makes sense even with something as mundane as a job loss. Not as much as some other disasters, but it's, it's there. Energy costs money, right? Security, you well, know, you know, a job loss, you don't have to worry that much about security unless you start pawning your, your, your self-defense, right? Um, and uh, shelter, well, how many people that lost jobs ended up losing their shelter in the form of a foreclosure? And now if we go to a major disaster like Joplin, Missouri, those people need food. They need clean water desperately, uh, especially the ones that were hit, you know, the ground zero people. Um, security, uh, pretty good lids been kept on it, but again, it's a very acute situation in a very specific area. Uh, had it been a little bit larger of a disaster, security might be a bigger issue. And in some areas uh, where tornadoes hit, there was, you know, almost immediate looting. Um, When it comes to energy, you know, the power outages that go along with them. Uh, so, I mean, he, my point is, instead of, and this is the whole point of the show, right, don't really focus on the disaster other than for mental exercises anyway. Focus on preparedness and focus on redundancy in your preparedness and understand things like, you know, I've been watching a show recently called Extreme Couponing. It's kind of cool. Most of these people are preppers without knowing it. And they have these huge food stacks, right? Huge amounts of food, but they always have them all, you know, in one big place. Well, if your house gets blown by a tornado, you can lose everything. So you have to start thinking about squirreling some things away, cashing some things away, some additional redundancy so that if your home gets wiped out, you don't lose everything you have. And if you focus on the needs versus the disaster, you're prepared because you don't get the luxury of deciding what disaster is going to hit you or how that disaster is going to affect you. So it's an interesting exercise. Maybe it's something that we'll do at some point because it might be a good tool for converting others, which we'll hear from another listener about in a bit. But the reality for the person that's converted that says, I'm going to be prepared, doesn't really matter what the disaster is other than maybe some specific things that you do, like setting up a storm shelter or a safe room in your home or something like that. Let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, hi, it's Rick Roderson from uh, Seattle, Washington, also known as Mixit Man on the forum. I've been a long-time listener. Uh, here's my question for you on permaculture. I uh, just got 12 acres in eastern Washington outside of Wenatchee. Uh, it's slow property. It's, it's a perfect location for trying my hand with some swaling and some permaculture. And I, I wanted to get some more training on that, and I'm not sure if it's worth it to go to one of the permaculture design courses. Um, the, you know, time and money is not really a big concern for me. I, I have both. It, it's more of just kind of what's the best bang for my dollar and time frame. Uh, is it getting one of the course materials and doing it online? I know you kind of did a little bit of work with that, and I just wonder what you're kind of, you know, I kind of want to get started right away, so that's why I don't want to... <laughs> have to do a long course, but I just kind of want to get going on that and uh, uh, see what you think on that. Um, been a long-time listener. I probably started around show 70, I think, when I found you. Um, it's uh, definitely changed my life for the better. Um, now self-employed, uh, you know, living that dream. Um, not quite where you're at, but we're getting there. Uh, thanks so much. I uh, really appreciate it and look forward to hearing your comments on the air. Thanks. Well, it's a good question, but once again, the audience is in sync. So I'm going to do a twofer here, and I'm going to play a second question. As soon as you hear it, you'll know why, and then I'll come back and kind of answer them both together. Hey, Jack. It's Nevin in Cottage Grove, Oregon. Uh, love the show. I'm a new listener. Uh, I heard you mention on one of your shows that you were watching the Bill Mollison and Geoff Lawton 12-bit series on permaculture. And I'd just like to hear what you think of it and or would you recommend it. Uh, uh, I'd really like to get more into permaculture and would like to hear anything you have to say about it. Thank you very much. Bye. See, I told you guys, you're always in sync. It's amazing to me. Those calls came in. I think I moved that one, that second call up like four calls in the order in the queue to put them together. And that means they called maybe a couple days apart at the most, probably a day apart at the most. Anyway, um, part of the answer to the first caller is that this, uh, this series, this DVD series, uh, out of, uh, Australia, uh, from Tagari, who is, uh, the company that's, I guess, runs everything for Bill, uh, Mollison and his spouse, 
uh, and I think we're, you know, I think Jeff Lawton has a stake in that too, uh, has this, this DVD series. So if you just want to experience PDC without actually, which is the permanent culture design course without actually traveling, uh, you can order this DVD series. With everything that's been going on, I've only watched about a half of it so far. And the last DVD is an overview of the, uh, projects that the students completed as part of their PDC. And I haven't seen that one yet, and part of me feels like I should just go ahead and watch that, because I think that might be the most valuable part of it. My overall feeling with the DVD course so far is this. I almost in some ways wish Jeff Lawton had done the whole thing. When he's presenting, he's easier to understand through the accent. He's more specific to the hows, the whats, and the whys. Uh, Mollison sometimes is hard to understand. He kind of mumbles off, and he kind of goes on these rambling rants once in a while, But there's all this wisdom. It's like typical old man ranting. There's so much wisdom in there. And you start wondering, what the hell is this guy talking about? And then it comes back into a real world, something that really happened. Uh, so it's, it's a good pairing. But me being the give me the info freaking now type guy, I appreciate Lawton's style first. So just be aware, it's mostly what they call chalk and talk. So it's these two guys in front of blackboards, draw, blackboards drawing out diagrams and things. But it's pretty much, it's not, there's some, you can tell there's some pieces taken out and you're probably like, wow, I'm glad they did that. Uh, cause once in a while you see like something written on the board that you didn't see the guy write. Um, but it's pretty much like going to a PDC given by Molliston and Lawton, which is as good as it gets because you've got the founder and one of his main protégés. And both of these men have not just you know set this system up, but actually traveled the world and implemented it in everything from desert to jungle uh, and everything in between. So it would save you going to a design course. You're not going to get the credential, but unless you're looking to set up a consulting practice or something like that, you probably don't care. So that's more for the uh, first call. So it's definitely great. It's expensive. It's over $300, and uh, the shipping on it is insane. It's like $85 for shipping from uh, from Australia to North America, which just seems nuts to me. Um, but I, you know, I guess that's what it costs. So I think they would do better selling it if they set up... Uh, local distribution somehow here in America, just a, a warehouse and put a few hundred copies in there and, and sold out of there. But for, I could not find it any other way than buying it directly from Tagari in, uh, I think it's New South Wales is where it's located. Whatever, it doesn't matter. It's, uh, it's expensive. 300 and some odd dollars and then 85 bucks for shipping. But I, I'm not sending it back and asking for a refund. I'll tell you that. I thought it was very, very valuable. For a course you can take here, and I guess the only time constraint is waiting uh, till the you know the next one starts. I would rec recommend uh, Midwest Permaculture. That's Bill Wilson's operation, and the main reason is, and I did take the uh, the, the the online portion, which is basically a cram course. This design, so you take that. And then you get a discount off your, your, your main course, or you do it all in together in one and pay for it all at once either way, um, so that when you go do the actual design course hands-on, a lot of the chalk and talk style stuff is already done. And that condenses the course and makes it only two weeks long. So you have the time to go and the money to go, But the longer you're there, the longer you're not home and doing what you got to do. So I think that Bill Wilson's course, it, you know, it's designed to be a permaculture course for busy people. So they're very respectful of your time. Do I think it's necessary? No, I think you can learn everything you need to learn from resources that are online, from DVDs and things like that. But I think it's valuable. Uh, and I think that uh, even though it's not it's not just about the credential, for God's sake, anybody knows me, knows I'm not real big on credentials. I've advised more people not to go to college than I've advised people to go to college. So that tells you what I think about credentials. But if you go there, you'll meet other people that are doing similar projects, and you'll be able to talk to uh, the course instructor about, you know, not maybe so much during class time, but in after class time, here's my unique challenges, my unique things, my unique bioregion. And if you go to Midwest, you're going to deal with people that deal with probably a colder climate than you do in, in Washington on, on your side of the Cascades. It's actually a fairly mild climate, even though it's so far north because of the warmth off of the ocean. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's probably an easier environment than uh, places like, you know, Illinois. 
So I think that would be a great fit for the caller asking about that. So the DVDs I recommend, but they're expensive, and you're going to deal with some of Mollison's ramblings, uh, a significant amount, in fact. Uh, and the, 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 the shipping is insane. It's absolutely nuts, but... Um, you got to get the product from from Australia to here somehow. Um, on the design course, if I was going to go anywhere, I would go with Wilson up at Midwest. He's actually offered to allow me to come up there. I'd like to take him up on that when I can find the time. Uh, th let's go ahead and take another question. Thanks for asking both of those great questions, guys. Hey, Jack, this is Dave in Akron, Ohio, uh, Living Simple on the forum. I just had a question about composting toilets. In a recent show, I think you had somebody call in to ask about human waste. Um, my thoughts are, are this on it, that uh, with the models ranging from ones that use no water to and no electricity to ones that use very minimal water and minimal amount of electricity, they'd be ideal for everyday use and also for any kind of disaster situation. Uh, I also think they'd be easily... in incorporated into retrofitting a house or into new construction. Uh, the other thought that I had is, as you know, when you solve any problem, um, you also open up opportunities for yourself to expand on that. Um, <clears throat> I guess what that would, would give you then is the opportunity to redirect any other water in a house, any other wastewater into a gray water system for irrigation. Uh, possibly even eliminating the need for a well if you're into rainwater harvesting. Uh, from my understanding, the um, water usage on a residential home for toilets is about 25 to 30 percent, so you're saving a lot there. But I'd just like to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, good luck with everything, with the move and all. Uh, thanks a lot, Jack. Well, I do like the concept of if I do it now when I don't need it, it's taken care of when I do need it. And getting rid of our waste is one of the big things uh, that we, you know, we want to do. Here's my, my issue with composting toilets. I have had talked to numerous people that have used them. And some people say it's no big deal, it's no hassle, there's no odor, there's no problem, I love it, I have no trouble whatsoever. And I've talked to other people who have said there's problems, it's sometimes things don't work and things get stuck and it's sometimes there's nasty problems. And uh, So I've had people that, that, that both love and hate the composting toilet. Um, and not having one had one myself yet, I can't weigh in with my personal thoughts on it. And I try not to be really emphatically recommending of something unless I absolutely know. So my view of it has been it's something that's out there. You can try it. It's a significant investment, but uh, it may pay for itself long term. Even with the savings on your uh, your water and your sewer, I mean, we're talking many years to get a payback on something that costs a couple thousand bucks or more. And I would, if I'm going to buy a composting toilet, I'm not going to go low end bottom of the, the heap, so to speak. I'm going to go with a with a one of you know a well proven, well warranted uh, uh, higher end model uh, because I think if you're going to have something that's that critical to your infrastructure, uh, it makes sense to do that. Now, why don't I do this? Well, because I have a septic system. And I believe a septic system is a very viable and, and very environmentally friendly system. I I don't think septic systems are bad. I don't think that they're uh, you know there's something that you can't rely on. I think especially with a household with only two people in it, uh, our septic system should last a lifetime. Uh, you know we do add the, uh, the active. Uh, uh, biological uh, stuff in there once in a while, whatever. I can't remember what it's called. So you basically just dump a box of it in the toilet once every three or four months to help keep things in balance in your septic system, and that's a couple bucks. So I don't have a need. If I had stayed in suburbia, I may have eventually done that. Now, going to a gray water system, it does solve some problems, and let me explain why. For a lot of us, and the reason I never did a gray water system in um, Texas was that I have a slab foundation and all those pipes go in and finding a common so I'd have to like retrofit every single place and obviously I can't you know get tap into uh, the sewer drain because the sewer drain's not gray water it's gray water and black water together so it may make retrofitting better because you could basically tap into uh, a sewer line but that's going to be deep so now we're going to have to use a pump so now we have to use energy 
So it, it may help. I'm not really sure on that. Uh, most gray water stuff is designed that you, you know, basically set it up directly at your, uh, your washing machine, for instance, or directly at the drains underneath your sinks. Uh, so the one big thing that leaves that makes it a little difficult to retrofit is a shower. And, uh, I don't know, man, the way that I've always done with our showers, and they, people think I'm a little bit extreme with this, but to me it's just so simple, I don't see why not to. It takes time for my shower to heat up. So I throw a bucket in there while the water's heating up, a five-gallon bucket. It usually fills about halfway before I get the water the temperature I want it. I take the bucket out. I take a shower. The stuff goes down the drain, and I take that extra water, and I just walk outside after my shower, and I water the plants that are on the deck or what have you, and I've always done that. And I think that's a, a very environmentally sound and a very efficiency. It's, it's not really just about environment. I mean, I've got a 695-foot deep well. Um, I'm not worried about running out of water, and I have backup electrical redundancy, so I'm not worried about running out of the ability to uh, get the water out of the well. Um, it's just, hey, that's water that I don't have to go through another action to acquire. It is a good environmental consideration, but it's also an efficiency consideration. It gives me a good return of investment. The plants get watered. I don't waste the water, and I don't really have to do anything that's that big a deal. Uh, I carry a half a bucket of water out and dump it in my plants, and the next day I dump it in the other plants, and that way the plants pretty much get watered every other or every third day. It, it just makes sense to me. If I want to fertilize with uh, liquid fertilizer, I just dump a little bit in the bucket before I start dumping it in the plants. It, it just makes sense sense to me. Um, composting toilets, I'm not going to say really positive or negative on them again because I haven't had a lot of hands-on direct experience with them, but if it's something you want to do for your home, I highly encourage you to do it, and please tell me what your results are. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jonah, Long Beach, California. The question, how do we turn a lawn into a garden? Regular grass or lawn-type grass How do you transform that into a garden? Do you just throw dirt and mulch on top of it? Do we overturn the lawn into so it's dirt? How do we start with that? That's the question. Thanks, buddy. You're the best. Bye. Well, it's situational. It depends. And in spite of what Paul Wheaton has against newspaper and cardboard, I don't. I've seen it work too many times in too many places to say not to use that technique anymore. I think if you mat it up and use the inserts with the shiny paper that you're not supposed to use, you'd have some problems. And maybe certain certain types of maybe laminated cardboard, you'd have this problem. But let's let's look at some different examples. Let's say your yard has some grass, but it's really weak and it doesn't have a good root structure and it it's just barely there and you just want to turn an area into a garden well um, laying down uh, 15, 20 layers deep of newspaper and throwing compost and dirt on top of it uh, and planting into it will probably work just fine for you uh, it'll probably kill off most of the grass there's always going to be some weeds to deal with and things like that but, but it'll probably work if you have good turf and I don't mean necessarily pretty turf um, but if you have If you go to pull grass out and you've got a good sod down there, you have a couple choices. One is you can you can you know basically cut that sod, flip it over, and that will effectively kill it. And uh, that's one way to do it. If you're going to do that, rent a sod cutter from like Home Depot or Lowe's for a day. It will it will do so much more so fast for you. It's unbelievable. So you can flip that sod over and then pile up you know uh, mulch and compost and stuff on top of it and, and go from there and plant into it with no dig. Or you can. You can dig beneath there, throw your sod on the bottom, and do kind of a double dig to establish, you know, if you want to do that way. It all, it's all dependent on you. If you live on the prairies and you've got perennial grasses that might have root systems that go down two feet or more, uh, you probably need to break sod, uh, dig down, and drop your sod packs down and, and do that. You probably need to. But if you have any kind of good sod, from the, the prairies, perennial grasses to um, you know your basic suburban Bermuda grass or uh, Raleigh St. Augustine or what have you, the best thing to use is cardboard. Cardboard is going to give a fairly impenetrable barrier. It's going to last long enough under the compost and mulch that eventually, uh, by the time it kind of rots away, you've pretty much killed what's down there. So you can use any of those techniques. Double dig with sod cutting, simple sod cutting and flipping, uh, 
newspaper, cardboard. You got to look at the existing lawn and how strong is it? How deep are its roots? How resilient is it? If it's very weak, newspaper alone will do the job. Generally speaking, I want to use cardboard for this. I don't trust uh, newspaper alone to do the job in most situations. Uh, grass, if there's any level of the rhizome left down there, the, the root system down there, it will find a path to the surface. It is amazing what a single blade of grass can get through. And here's the thing, once that one blade gets through and that solar activity starts and that root begins to put away energy and it sends up a second one and that made a pathway and then it sends up a third one and then one pops and next thing you know, you've got grass growing straight up through your beds. And once it establishes, since you put all that compost in there and mulch there and you've got your water conservation and you're taking care of it, it becomes super grass and it becomes almost impossible to eradicate. So that's why I'm big on either cutting sod or using cardboard. Uh, either one of those techniques will work for you. If you want to do no dig, nice heavy cardboard, big layer of mulch and compost on top. You can plant right into it. Yes, your root system is going to be relatively shallow, but if you go at least six inches uh, with your building up of your beds, you can plant some stuff right away. By the time you go about three to six months uh, with watering and all, that, that cardboard is pretty much decomposed. The roots can get through and down into the subsoil, and a lot of great biological activities going down there. All of the green matter that you've killed has begun to decompose, possibly some of it anaerobically, but it doesn't matter because it's down there under the ground. You've got all kinds of little soil creatures living there, and you're rocking on with a great garden without ever lifting a shovel once to actually dig or break sod. But if you use just newspaper for this, folks, I'm telling you, you're going to create a super lawn. And that's exactly the opposite effect that you want. Don't trust newspaper alone unless it's very moderate stuff. You know, if it's a little bit of shaggy stuff here and there, and you go really heavy with your compost, four to six inches or deeper, you can get by with it. But most of the time, you're going to want to use cardboard. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Julie. I have listened to your episode six four eight about reaching the unreachable. And as a person who had to evacuate her college during Opal, had to weather Hurricane George and Katrina uh, about 10 miles north of Gulf Coast, Mississippi, traveled up to St. Louis in 2006, got hit with a, a thunderstorm and ice storm in 2006, which both knocked out power uh, for about a week at least, and just recently uh, was affected by the EF4 that hit St. Louis County. Um, my house was okay, but power is still out. I just want to say that these are good opportunities for people to converse with their spouses about some minor level of preparedness, just as a start, and uh, just say, look what happened, hun, at St. Louis. Well, you know, we have ice storms here in the winter up north. Well, maybe we should at least get some minor provisions for when the electricity goes out. Not at the time when it's impending, but maybe in the summer. Just something for us to think about. And just want to think of your thoughts about such a tactic. Just use general weather-related events, kind of relate them to potential weather events in your area to get your spouse on board. Thank you. Got a lot of stuff to talk about there. Thanks for that call. It's great. And first of all, um, I don't know that I ever want you to come visit me in Hot Springs. Um, Wow, I feel bad for you, but you sound like you attract disaster, uh, ma'am. I, I just, <laughs> I don't know. I, I honestly, I feel bad for you, and I hope that you've come through all of this stronger. And uh, don't mean to poke fun at your situation there, but it does. It would kind of scare me if you're like Jack. I'm coming to see you. Uh, I think I'd batten the hatches down pretty good. Uh, you seem to be a, a disaster magnet, but your thoughts are, are dead on. Um, but I also think that. Here's, here's the problem when we have the uh, attempt to convert people that we're close to. We talk too much and we listen too little. 
And uh, what generally happens is it's the exact approach that you're using there and slightly altering it will make it more effective. Let me explain. So let's say I say to you, honey, look uh, look what happened in Joplin, man. What would we do if that happened here? Uh, and, and generally speaking, you know, maybe we should put some stuff together. And, then, you know, a lot of times a spouse will go, but look, their house is gone. I mean, what? it wouldn't matter if we were prepared if our house is gone. And, and you know, then you say, well, what about all the people that uh, that are just on the outskirts that don't have power now and uh, are trying to help? And then they, you know, you have that conversation that can go good or bad. But watch how to do this better. Wow, what will we do if that happened here? Shut up. And then when they give the objection, just don't say anything. Just wait. And only talk when you need to get them talking more. They'll talk themselves right into it. This is a, a sales technique that I used a lot, selling computer test equipment and computer hardware and things like that. And just be like, you know, what if you could save 50% over the cost of ro your network rollouts? Same thing, right? And they would immediately have an objection, but when you didn't say anything, then they start spending the money. But if it really worked, then I could. Really? And what would you do with that? See, questions are better than directives. Uh, questions lead people to come up with answers. Questions are not accusational unless you say, what did you do, right? If you say, well, what would we do? How would we deal with that? What do you think those people there should have done? What could those people have done, right? All questions, as many questions as possible, leads that person to start. Because if you put questions in front of the mind... The human mind, when presented with a question or a story without a conclusion, starts writing the conclusion. Because right? that's what a question is. A question is a story that doesn't have a conclusion. A question is a story that is only the beginning of the story. It's a narrative yet to be written. When you write the story for the other person, a person that's already resistant in some ways is naturally greater relief. Don't write my story for me. But if you don't write, and then that allows them to create their own narrative of resistance. But when you give the person the question without the answer, then they seek the solution. And they may start off with things that sound like resistance, but what you're hoping to do in these scenarios is you don't always close the deal on the first call. You're hoping to plant the seed so that maybe as they start watching the news and paying attention to this and seeing people that are affected and start realizing that while the news focuses on the people whose house is down to the foundation, that there's thousands and thousands of other people there that are without power, uh, that are without clean water, uh, that can't get food from the grocery store because the shelves are empty, or the grocery store's gone because the grocery store is one of the things that got hit. And there's less grocery stores, so the people that are left are now shopping at what's left, and they're, they're wiping things out, and they're waiting on the government for assistance. So uh, the, the, to me, the more you can get the other side talking, the better you'll do with reaching the unreachable. I also want to, this is a perfect lead-in to something that I heard on the radio. I think it was the North Carolina or South Carolina governor talking about tornado or not tornado season, uh, hurricane season getting ready to start up and all, and you know some you know tropical storm activity starting to churn and all. And she was saying, today is the day to go out and buy your candles and your matches and your flashlights and your batteries. And that mentality is how shit ends up disappearing, folks. That mentality, today is the day to do it. No, every day is the day to do a little bit. And this is an example of a government official giving the exact wrong advice. Wait for a special day to go out and get prepared. No, if you live in a hurricane-prone zone, your lifestyle should be accommodating toward hurricane preparedness. If you live in a tornado-prone zone, your lifestyle should be you know, uh, slanted in and, 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 and set up to be prepared for tornadoes. If you live in a blizzard-prone zone or an ice-prone zone, uh, and no matter where you live, you should be living a lifestyle that has a level of preparedness in it. And yes, we can use these disasters to talk about, re, you know, about the potential for disaster, but it can have blowback. There was a listener that said when I did the show right after the, the Fukushima event and the tsunami and all, that they had tried to share that show, which was very, very level-headed, very rational, very, you know what, we probably don't have anything to worry about with radiation whatsoever, period, in America. And you people that keep sending me these documents and these things that are written by some guy that went to some physics school 25 years ago and hasn't done anything since and says the world is ending because of this. Stop it. 
If you can't give me a credible source, it's not a credible source. And I had a guy the other day about that that said, um, Jack, uh, well, what is credible? CNN and Fox News that are lying to us? I don't trust them either in a lot of ways. It still doesn't mean your source is credible. We have to have credible sources on this. But my point with that was that when the person sent this thing, all they did was look at the fact that Fukushima was mentioned and say, oh, this is, this is alarmism and not, nonsense. Right? Didn't matter that the content was actually, don't worry about that right now. You have other things to worry about for yourself. So if we push too hard with look at this disaster, sometimes we can get pushback. The thing that works with these recent disasters is they're very close to home. They're not across an ocean. They're not that far away. And there is a real sense that it could happen to us. So while they're tragic, yes, using them to reach the unreachable is a great tactic. Just please do more questions than answers when you're talking to somebody with resistance. When you give answers to somebody who is resistant, you increase the resistance because you're pushing. When you ask questions, you're pulling. And people that are resisting being pushed, when you when you pull... You pull them right off of their center of gravity. It's a martial arts technique. If you're up resisting, all I have to do is, mister, is take that resistance and guide you toward it, and I can put you completely off balance. In this case, it's not combat. I guess on a level it's some intellectual combat, but it's simply about pulling that person out of that, that resistant cone of nothing can happen to me and just putting them into a position where they can think clearly. Because anybody that thinks clearly is going to have some level of disaster preparedness. It is an irrational act. It is an insane thing to have no preparedness in your life. It is a stupid, irrational, insane act to be completely and totally unprepared for anything. And yet the majority of people live that way. Why? Because it's not comfortable for them to accept the fact that they're vulnerable. Please try to remember that when talking to people in situations like that. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Dan from the frozen tundra of Minnesota. Just got a question for you on the uh, rocket uh, stove. Wondering if uh, you think you'd be able to use pine in that uh, type of a stove. I've got a wood stove inside my house. We don't use anything other than uh, good oak or uh, pop or that type of uh, hardwood. Uh, just wondering what you think about using pine in a rocket stove, just because it's so uh, hot and it reburns uh, everything. I don't think you'd have much of a creosote problem. Looking at uh, using that rocket stove inside my greenhouse, just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Thank you. All I can say is, like in the smaller, like you know, camping size models that I've hand built. Uh, out of cans and stuff like that, or when I've created it using rocks and basically created a little one or uh, anything like that, I've never had a problem with pine, and I've used pine a lot. When I used the Kelly Kettle, which was uh, pretty much a, a rocket stove with a water jacket around it to boil water, uh, I used pine specifically because it burns so well, and um, I, I don't think it's a big problem. And I, I don't think there's any reason not to use pine in a rocket stove. The whole point is you have secondary combustion. So everything that's produced is then combusted a second time. The other thing is burning pine in a fireplace is not necessarily bad on its face. It's not necessarily higher in creosote. A lot of people that live in places where that's all they can get burn a lot of pine. Uh, and they do okay with it. The, the issue is when we have a choice between pine and a hardwood, a hardwood is going to burn slower longer and put out a more consistent heat where pine tends to burn hotter and faster and in some fireplaces that can be you know especially a lot of suburban fireplaces that aren't meant for large fires they're meant to put one of those stupid little fire logs in there that can be kind of a danger they get too hot uh, the other side is even if you have a good fireplace designed to burn stuff like that um, you got to keep feeding the beast a lot more than you do if you're burning oak and hickory and apple and and you know stuff like that from uh, from tree trimming and stuff. So it, it, pine isn't necessarily all bad. It's not the evil demon that we've been led to believe. But the people that live in the north that, that have to use it, they tell me it doesn't cause more creosote. 
uh, build up in chimneys than uh, than hardwood. I, I don't I don't believe that. I'm sorry. Uh, if you look at pine pitch and pine tar and the way that it burns, uh, there is a greater exhaust. The thing is that that greater exhaust should be combusted in the secondary combustion chamber of a rocket stove. Haven't ever worked with a large rocket stove and done it consistently. So if you have, uh, please get in touch with me and let me know if I'm on the right track with this. But that's my instinct. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. It's uh, Matt here, Bones on the Forum, long-time uh, listener, first-time caller. Congrats on the uh, recent move, by the way. Hey, as I was out uh, walking the dog this morning, I noticed a, uh, a lot of tree trimmings out for disposal, and it brought back to mind a uh, question I had about something I'll call linear culture. Uh, basically, my idea is you build a swale using logs and brush as the downhill berm for the swale. Uh, of course, it would take a lot of work, a lot of uh, outside um, wood and so forth, but it um, looks like there's plenty of that to be had, certainly within the city here. Lots of work, but uh, lots of reward for years. I'd be interested in your ideas about it. Uh, again, linear Google culture. Uh, you can coin that phrase if you'd like. And I'll take my uh, comments off the air, obviously. Have a good one. Bye. What you're talking about is actually called an organic matter swale by Jeff Lawton in one of his uh, DVDs. I think it was an introduction to permaculture or something like that. One of his, uh, it's like kind of an introduction type DVD um, I, that I watched where he's walking through all these different places. He shows a couple of exactly what you're talking about. Uh, when I first heard your question, I was thinking maybe what you were talking about is burying the wood underground on the downhill side of the swale, which a lot of people have asked about, and I don't know how, how necessary that is. Once you've got the swale done uh, and you're, you're saturating the earth, I, I think you're going to hold plenty of water there. Um, but what you're talking about actually might be, you say it's a lot of work, it might be a lot easier than swaling. If I swale, I have to dig. If I build an organic matter swale, I just mark my contour line and start piling up. And basically what you're going to do then is you're going to build a, 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 an above-ground culture bed the way that Paul Wheaton suggests we do it and the way that Sepp Halzer does it. And we could build it anything from a couple feet high to, you know, uh, Sepp has some that are six feet tall. Um, so we build our, our organic matter swale, and then to me it would make sense to not just have the organic matter but to bring in dirt and bury it. And we could go ahead and cut a, a, a shallow swale ditch and then pile the dirt up there and kind of put those two things together as a hybrid. I don't know if anybody quite that's done it quite that way, uh, but it seems to me that it would work quite well. Um, I'll give you an example of what we're going to do with some of my earthworks that we're going to be doing out at my place. It doesn't really work to swale very well where I'm at. It's just between the rock, between the, 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 the way that the property slopes, the angle of slope and the short duration uh, of the land that's actually exposed to good solar uh, activity because it kind of drops away and back. So what makes more sense to do is to terrace. So with terracing, I can do shorter runs than with swales and get a fairly marked effect. What we're going to do with our swaling, or not our swaling, our terracing there, is we're going to put our, our, our terraces on about a one-degree backslope. So if the terrace is, uh, let's say I take a piece that's, uh, that's a, a 20 feet uh, flat spot, and then it's going to step down to another 20-foot terrace, and then down to another 20-foot terrace. That 20-foot terrace at the top will have about a one-degree pitch back into where it's cut out. And then right back where it's cut out, where all that water kind of flows back, uh, maybe we have uh, 10 of the 20 feet that we dig out a ditch, we fill with... Um, we fill with uh, with organic matter, maybe a foot deep of wood for a hugel culture, and then we, we bury that back to a flat, and then we use the excess dirt that comes out of there as additional fill dirt to expand the terrace on a uh, uh, so they can be a a longer terrace, and maybe 20 feet's not the right term. You know, it's all going to depend on when we get the machine out there and start working and dealing with the slope, but maybe it's more of a 30 foot with a 10 foot. Um, uh, wide swath at the back side of the terrace that's, that's filled in. So there's a lot of ways you can put these things together. But please remember that if you have better conditions to work with, one may be all you need. If you have a nice gentle slope and you have good topsoil and you're not rock and silica and sand 
and uh, you do just swaling, it's probably all you need. Or if you have an area that you have, you know, it's not that big, and you're just going to do hula culture beds, it's probably all you really need. You, we don't need to combine things just because we can. Uh, but a lot of times it does make sense. So, uh, great question. There's my thoughts on it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Joby from uh, Southern Indiana. I got a quick question. I just got a couple bags of uh, hardwood mulch I'm going to put around uh, my garden, uh, not close to my house or anything. Uh, I opened up the first bag, had a bunch of termites in it, and was wondering if it would be okay to still use it. Uh, are the termites going to cause any damage to anything in the garden? I'm not too concerned with the house, uh, kind of far away from it. And I opened up the next bag of mulch, and it was all white and considerably moldy and didn't know if that was going to harm anything in the garden either. Uh, just curious. I got them sitting off to the side to uh, see what you have to say. Uh, appreciate what you do, man. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, I mean, if, if you put enough hardwood mulch out in enough places, you're going to have termites in there sooner or later anyway, and it's not all bad. They eat the wood. They break it down. They're part of the... Uh, The, the, the recycling program that nature has intended. I don't like them near my home, uh, but as long as you're not going to use it very close to the home, I probably wouldn't worry about it. A lot of people would say, why take the risk? And my response would be, there's termites all over the place anyway. Um, generally speaking, termites don't get into homes because they don't, we don't create the environment to invite them in. Uh, not because they're not there, not because they're not around. Uh, there's more of them out there than you might imagine. Just about any garden bed or any garden pot that I've used a lot of wood mulch in, I have eventually found termites in there. And, and I've not really ever had a problem with them getting into my home uh, other than one time. And it actually had nothing to do with things like that. And uh, we had the place treated, and, it's, uh, and it was a long time ago. Um, on the mold, it could be, but probably not. Um, what you actually want is you want fungal activity in your gardens. We've gotten to a point with uh, people that think completely the opposite, that all funguses are bad. Well, no, certain funguses are bad. There are certain funguses uh, like blight funguses that infect tomatoes that we definitely don't want around. But the fungi, in the words of uh, Jeff Lawton, is the teeth of the forest. The fungi is how the, the, the tree that gets, uh, it falls over uh, turns into soil. Without the fungi, that doesn't happen. So when we have fungi in our wood mulch, that's actually part of the activity that eventually converts that wood into soil. Because remember, some people are afraid of wood mulches because uh, at first they actually take up nitrogen as part of their breakdown process. But as they're consumed by fungi, they actually release that nitrogen back into the soil. So where some people see a nitrogen sink, the person who understands the holistic nature of, uh, of things understands it's actually a nitrogen trap, and it becomes like a time-released uh, form of nitrogen. So what we can do is make sure there's far more nitrogen than necessary for just the uh, the growth and for the uh, the wood that's there, and we create a, a very long term nitrogen rich environment. Uh, and again, fungi are part of that, so I wouldn't worry about the fungus in any way, shape, or form. If there you have, if you're growing certain crops that are susceptible to this fun to fungus, like tomatoes and potatoes, you may want to use that mulch elsewhere because we're not sure exactly what type of fungus we've got there. But generally, your white uh, mycelium is what you're seeing. It's the actual fungus. The fruit comes out in little mushroom type fruits later. Uh, that white is that mycelium. That's what spreads through. When you see a log. Uh, that has mushrooms on it, if you could open that log up and look on the inside, you'd see that white, hairy stuff all throughout that log. And that is a beautiful thing. So I have a lot of people that have actually pushed back on me with wood mulches by saying, but it encourages fungus. Yes, it does. But it also encourages the right kinds of fungus. So I wouldn't worry about that one either. That's the last call we have for today. I apologize, there's a call missing. And I can't find it, and I went back through and tried to do it. But I'm going to basically summarize what the guy said. If you call back in, sir, somehow I've lost your call, I'll play your call on the air. But here was his thing, and I thought it was a good thing to end on today. Uh, he called in and said, basically, you know, everybody's freaked out over De uh, December 21st, 2012, and um, the Mayan prophecy that the world will end, which is not what the Mayan prophecy says anyway. And what he says is that what's really forecast is a great change. And that he has written his debt freedom plan to be debt free on December 21st, 2012. 
and that will put him in a great position to buy all the stuff from all the panicked people that are dumping everything on Craigslist and eBay, uh, like I said they would be doing for years now, uh, in January of 2013, because they realized they have all this crap, Christmas just went on, they're out of money, and they need to get rid of stuff. So, um, And that would be a great transformation, and that maybe we should um, claim that day as our own and repurpose it Uh, for some major achievement. So some people are already debt-free, so maybe there's some other achievement that you want to, to have your long-term plan coincide with that day and make it a day of transformation, but a day of positive transformation. I think that is a way of being a real survivalist. A real survivalist looks at the most threatening things and determines how to convert them into opportunities to grow to change, to evolve. So I don't remember your name, whoever called in with that one, but if you're listening, please make that call again. When you do, send me an email, and I'll kind of push it to the front of the queue um, because I would love to have you kind of restate your own thoughts on that and play that on a future call-in show. And with that, folks, we are going to wrap up today. Remember, if you want to be on a show like today, 866-65-THINK. You get about two minutes, so make your call direct and to the point. Uh, ask your question up front and then give me your background information. That helps my screening process. Yeah, it's really much more helpful when you say, Jack, my question is, and here's all the other things I think you need to know, that, and that's your written questions as well, Then when you're like, let me tell you the story of how Earth was founded, and uh, the, the microbe was in the pool, and, then, and now I want to know uh, which wood to use to heat my home. Uh, it's not the way to formulate your questions. Not good for the audience, not good for the show. It slows down my screening, and sometimes I'll be honest with you. If I start playing your, your, your audio message, and uh, I get 30 seconds into it, and you haven't gotten to your point yet, uh, sometimes I just delete you and don't answer your question, and sometimes I just skip you, and maybe I'll, you know, on a day I have more time to screen, I'll see if I can get you in. So that's how to get on these shows, whether the call-in shows like today or the write-in shows like Monday. Be directed to the point. Uh, that way, I uh, get you through the screening process faster. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you